scriptures in the book of First John as we continue our series on these Sunday evenings through this great book of the New Testament. And as we read together this evening verses 25 to 29 in chapter 2 of First John. The book of First John chapter 2 verses 25 through 29 where we read, and this is what he promised us, even eternal life. I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, the anointing you received from him, that is, from God, remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. And now, dear children, continue in him, so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. Thus reads once more the living and the abiding word of God. Now, on these Sunday evenings, as you are aware, we are continuing through this small but so distinguished and significant book of the New Testament, the book of First John. And we have been seeing in the course of our studies together on Sunday evenings that John is intent upon bringing to us the three great tests of the genuine Christian. He has been putting to us the question, how do I know that I am indeed in Christ and that I am not self-deceived or counterfeit? And you remember that he brought to us the moral test that we confess our sins to God and do not pretend that we are not sinners and that we keep God's commandments. And he has brought to us the social test in these early chapters, that we should love the brethren dearly and sincerely and that we should, by contrast, not love the world in all its fallenness. Now, last Sunday evening, you remember in the verses immediately preceding the section that we read this evening at the end of the chapter, John had brought us to the third and equally vital test of whether I am a genuine Christian. And it is what we call the theological or the biblical test, that he who is a Christian not only lives the life that is moral and upright and honoring to God in the confession of sin and outwardly in love to the church of God, love of the brethren, but he is also a man or a woman who abides in the truth of God. And in that section last Sunday evening, we had those warning words of the aged apostle against not only the Antichrist who will finally come into the world, the great deceiver who will seek to supplant the Lord Jesus Christ himself, but we had the warning that many Antichrists are already in the world whose purpose is to deceive the people of God, and lead them out of the way of life. 
And we saw last Sunday evening that the key test of every religion and every sect and every cult that has ever arisen in the Christian centuries is the doctrinal test, the biblical test, the theological test. What is their view of the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ? And John was at pains as we saw to emphasize But the third and vital and necessary mark of the true Christian is that he abides in the truth of God under the unction or anointing of the Holy Spirit that leads him or her into all of God's truth that is inscripturated. Now, the point is that last week's study in verses 18 through 24 in the face of anti-Christian teaching, really focused upon the teaching itself. And that is why John was so explicit that the spirit of Antichrist that is already abroad in the world today is the spirit that denies that Jesus is the Christ. The focus was upon the false teaching that leads the Christian astray. Now, as you read with me this evening in your Bibles, verses 26 through 29, you might almost think that it's the same identical theme that John is dealing with. And I want to suggest to you that it isn't. It's the same in substance, but it is different, beloved. Because the focus in verses 26 through 29 that ends the chapter is not so much on the false teaching, but upon the false teachers. And John has some very significant and further specific applications that he would bring to bear upon our lives. And as you notice from the sermon note sheet this evening, there are really three things I believe he's saying to us. First, concerning the intentions of these false teachers. Secondly, concerning the pretensions of the false teachers. And thirdly, and so fittingly as he concludes the chapter, he bears reassurance into the believer's soul that if he is really in Christ, He has been furnished with divine equipment that will save him from the clutches of these false teachers that are abroad in the world. And I want you this evening, as time permits, to follow through with me in this threefold division of this passage of Scripture that is before us tonight. First of all, you notice there are the intentions of the deceivers in verse 26. Look at it with me in your Bible. I am writing these things to you, says John, about those who are trying to lead you astray. Or in some of our translations, those who are trying to deceive you. Now it's clear, isn't it, that his focus here is not so much upon the false teaching as I reminded you, which was exposed in verses 22 and 23 that we discussed and studied together last evening. But the focus, beloved, is upon the persons of these teachers and their intentions. And it was John Calvin in the 16th century, that master of biblical commentators still in 
this age in which we live, that said, as he commented on this verse, it is the duty of the diligent pastor not only to gather the flock, but also to drive away the wolves. And this is exactly what John, as a faithful pastor, aged as as he was, is doing here in this verse. I am writing these things, he says, about those who are trying to lead you astray. He's protecting the flock from the false prophet and the false teacher and the deceiver and the antichrist. And who are they? Well, as we have seen in our previous study, those who by one means or another, or in one way or another, deny the deity and the divinity and the uniqueness of the Lord Jesus Christ, who bring in their theological battering rams and attack orthodoxy. And the Antichrists are characterized by these kind of deceptions always and everywhere. Now, there are, I believe, three things that we should notice as we look together at this intention of the deceivers in verse 26. Now, will you notice with me, first of all, the tough language of the aged Apostle John? It is very strong language. And if that hasn't registered on our minds this evening, I suggest to you lovingly that it should do so. And I say this because we're living in an age when we shy away from criticizing other religions, don't we? We're almost afraid to say that someone else's religion or belief is wrong. And it's as though we want to bend over backwards to find some element of truth, even in a religion or a cult or a sect that is openly and obviously false in its teaching. And we're afraid to tread on someone's toes. And we're very conscious we're living in what's called an ecumenical age where it just isn't fashionable anymore, nor is it polite to criticize someone else's beliefs. But what I want you to notice, first of all, about verse 26, is that the New Testament apostles didn't think that way. They had a much more profound awareness that the Christian life, beloved, is a warfare. It really is. We're engaged in a battle. We're involved in a spiritual fight. And they were much more ready to make the distinctions that we draw back from making, that there is truth on the one hand and there is error on the other, that there is darkness on the one side and there is light on the other, that there is wrong in this religion or this sect or this cult but there is truth in the Orthodox Church and what it professes. And you know, I think it's exceedingly significant today that we pick up our newspapers and we even see on the television screen reports by the secular press and the TV newscasters that the Christian Church is unloosing its moorings even in the realm of hymnology. Have you read recently and heard the reports that I've heard about? 
but the mainline hymnals in a number of our denominations, Presbyterian, Methodist, Congregational, and so on, are removing certain hymns from their hymnaries deliberately and because of theological reasons. And those hymns are the ones that strike a militaristic note. Onward, Christian soldiers, rise up, O men of God. Fight the good fight with all thy might. Look for them in some of the recent editions of mainline denominational hymnals, and you will find that they have been removed and expurgated. Why? Because the imagery and the thought that we are in the midst of a spiritual battle against error and we need to arm ourselves with the whole panoply of God is no longer acceptable to a liberal religion that has loosed its moorings from the scriptures. And we should learn something, first of all, from this tough language of the apostles in the New Testament. I am writing to you, he says, because there are deceivers abroad in the world and you are in the gravest danger. And that's the first thing that we should notice. But the second thing follows quickly on it. But New Testament Christianity, this verse teaches us, includes a fight for right belief. And why is John writing this letter and this particular verse? Because what you believe, my dear friends, matters to God. And it matters to the devil as well. And believe me, the Christian life is not just a battle for living morally and uprightly before God, as we've seen, and living with right social relationships, with others in the church, loving the brethren and not loving this fallen world. But believe me, we are engaged in a battle of utmost importance for right belief and right doctrine and right theology, which matter profoundly according to New Testament religion. And so in verse 26, the warning against false teachers and prophets whose activities will have the tendency to lead away the elect of God even, if that were possible. They are trying to deceive you, to lead you astray, he says. And I don't know if some of you saw the well-known gospel film that was all the rage among certain Christian movements a number of years ago called Deceived. Just one word in its title, deceived. And the whole theme of that film, as I remember it, was the different cultic groups that exist in the world today who come in, the film showed, like angels of light among the people of God. What warmth was there in some of these cults? What love overflowing to those who came among them? What teaching that was so close to biblical orthodoxy that unless you were a discerning Christian, you could easily be taken in by it. What charming manners. What obvious enthusiasm. What delightful personalities among those who lead the false religions. What high intellectuality sometimes. And it all has the tendency to do one thing, 
to put you off your guard. And do you see, this is what the apostle is warning us about here. People whose whole practice is the deception deliberately of others. And mark you, John was meeting them already in the New Testament church. In the first century, you remember that error had begun to show itself and the purpose of this book of First John is to correct that great error of the Gnostics who claimed to have a special kind of elite knowledge that no one else had. And unless you were of their party, then you were not of Christ. And you turn the pages of church history and what do you see? In the fourth century, the Orthodox Church in deadly conflict with the error of Arianism that again denied the deity of Jesus and said he was like God, but he was not actually God. And God's Spirit, as many of you know, raised up the Orthodox champion of the real and the true Church in Athanasius. And by the grace of God, That great and cardinal truth of the Christian faith was preserved for us and enshrined in that well-known Athanasian creed. And in the Middle Ages, as you turn the pages of history again, what do you see? Deceivers abroad, the anti-Christian spirit in the world that has so overlaid the truth of God and the brightness of the scriptures with human inventions but the truth was barely visible at all. And in those ages of the ascendancy of the Roman Catholic Church and the decline of orthodoxy, you had a spiritual darkness that was close to night itself. The error and the superstition that had overlaid the truth is almost unbelievable until God raised up his chosen instrument in Martin Luther and again the glorious truths of scripture began to be unfolded to the minds and hearts of men. And you turn the pages of of history again in the 18th century and you find even as late as that the cold spirit of deism was there like the epicurean and stoic philosophers of whom we read in scripture this morning in act 17 god is so distant that he has nothing to do with the ordering of the affairs of this world and they denied the supernatural And God's answer, you remember, was in the raising up of George Whitfield and the Wesley brothers against this anti-Christian spirit of that age. And you think of today, where this theologian and that theologian is teaching in seminaries things that are contrary, clearly, to the scriptures. And whole denominations have been led astray into error. Some deny the deity of Jesus, some his virgin birth, others the validity of his atoning death, others still the reality of his bodily resurrection from the dead, still others his second coming, Antichrist, every one of them, and they are out to deceive. And we should not be surprised, beloved, because this has happened all the time from the first century until this present moment in which we live. So that's the second thing, you see, that this verse should remind and teach us of. 
that the New Testament Christianity includes always and everywhere a fight for right belief. Now, the third thing, very quickly, that it surely teaches us before we leave it is this, that given this situation, that is, the intention to deceive, why are Christians so slow to discern what is going on? Now, isn't that an appropriate question for us this evening? And I believe that one of the major reasons is this, the reluctance to believe that anybody in the realm of religion would want to deceive you. Would they use the holy oracles of God, the blessed gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, as an instrument of deception, Christians say? Such a holy thing as the religion that we profess? And John's answer is, yes, they will. And it's very interesting, and I'm indebted to a fellow minister for this illustration, but in a national newspaper recently reporting on religious scams in the United States of America, it was written that over a five-year period in which intensive research was done, some 5,000 professing Christian people were milked of something like $450 million in religious scams by false religious practitioners quoting verses of scripture, by various dreamers who came to them and said they had heard the voice of God that they were to give so much money to this cause or to that church, by someone coming to an undiscerning Christian and saying, I have the leading of the Holy Spirit that you should do thus and thus. And it all happened, my dear friends, because Christians had dropped their God. And it was all possible because of their naivety that they assumed that once you had gone through the door of a Christian church, there could be no deception there. And so it makes possible the Jim Joneses of this world and the Moses David, and they become the prey of these vultures that are wolves in sheep's clothing because the faithful are not alert and scripturally discerning. And this is John's emphasis. And if I were to speak of what I think is one of the greatest scams of all in this age, it could take me the rest of this evening. The liberal churches, the greatest scam of all, where preachers have sold out the blessed gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to all manner of substitutes and are presenting a false ideology to the flock, just plain, downright deception, and it's happening all the time. And this, says John, is why I have written to you the intention to deceive. Now I must press on because secondly, do you notice with me, but there is not only the intention, but there are the pretensions of the deceivers in verse 27. As for you, the anointing you received remains in you and you do not need anyone to teach you. 
Now, the focus in this verse, you notice, is upon the anointing that believers have received, and I'm going to say more of that anon. But I want you to notice that in verse 27, it occurs twice over at the beginning of the verse, and you notice later on in the verse as well. Why? Because the false teachers claimed to be the only ones who knew the mind of God. And I'm going to take out only two things from this verse, and that's the first of them. Why do Christians need the anointing of God that I'll speak of anon? Because the false teachers claim to be the ones alone who know the mind of God, who have, as it were, an in with the Almighty. So you see, the point that John is teaching us here is that they are claiming the anointing that no one else has. And it's a counterfeit anointing. So if you want to find the truth, they say, you jolly well better come to us. And this is their pretension. And that is the situation that he is describing. Now remember, in the first century A.D., the great error that John was contending against was the error of the Gnostics. And their name, Gnostic, means knowing ones. They alone had what it takes to know God. They alone claimed to have the spiritual and esoteric knowledge that the ordinary Christian could never rise to unless he became one of their party. They had, in modern terminology, a hotline to God. They knew his will and his mind and his truth. And uniquely it was theirs. So come to us was their message. And you see, John's great concern is here that if these elect of God, these dear children of God to whom he is writing, are tempted to join that party and that error and that counterfeit anointing, it will lead not to freedom, but to bondage, as it ever does. The bondage that Paul with tears spoke of in his letter to the Galatians in chapter 2, that those dear ones to whom he had preached his heart out in delivering God's truth were in danger of falling into the bondage of biblical error and loss of their freedom and becoming subject to false teachers. You know, there's such an authoritarianism, isn't there? among the cults and the four sects and all who have aberrant teaching in the church today. There is an authoritarianism that says you must do what I tell you and believe what I tell you because I alone have the truth. Now the second thing you will notice from verse 27 is this, that John brings to the Christian's attention the cure. And he says to them, in the body of verse 27, you don't need to subject yourself to any of these false teachers because the Holy Spirit is indwelling you and teaching you about all things. All things, not just some. Now let me safeguard this part of the verse. 
Of course he's not abolishing the teaching office in the church. This is how you can take a text out of context and it becomes a pretext for saying anything that you want to. Of course the apostle is not saying that there is no place for the teaching office in the church of God, as some heretics have very zealously proclaimed. For one thing, isn't John the apostle teaching them in these verses? Isn't he their teacher? Isn't this the whole purpose of the writings of his epistles and the gospel of John, to teach them? And doesn't scripture say in Ephesians 4 verse 11 that Christ risen and ascended has supplied what? Pastors and teachers that the body of Christ, his church, might be built up in every way and function as it should. And hasn't Paul in 1 Timothy 5 verse 17 set great honor on that teaching office when he said those who labor well in the word and doctrine are worthy of double reward. And John is honoring the teaching office. But what then is he abolishing? And the answer is the pretension of these special heretical teachers to unique knowledge that no one else has that has the effect of placing others in dependence upon them. And beloved this evening, doesn't this cry out to be emphasized in the world in which we're living today? So much of this is going on. What is the hallmark of the false cult? The hallmark is God has spoken to me alone, whether it's through the angel Moroni, showing me the golden plates that he has given me the gift of translation to decipher and which you need in addition to the scriptures. Or whether it's the author of Science and Health with a key to the scripture, Mary Baker Eddy, the founder of Christian Science, so-called. The message is, I have it, you need it, and you need to do what I tell you and believe what I command you to believe. And the power that results over the individual is simply incredible. I heard from a fellow minister just recently of a young Christian who was told by a supposed Christian prophet in the cult to which this person belonged, God is calling you to missionary service in such and such a place, and you are to train in such and such a seminary for it. And another instance, you are to marry such and such a person. Now, my dear friends, let me tell you this evening, no one has authority to give you commands in these personal areas of your life whom you are to marry where you are to live, what job you are to follow in life, and so on and so forth. And your response to any such false teaching should be, show me where it is in the scriptures, and I will believe that God has spoken to you. And your second response should be, it's strange that God never told me that. You see, God never operates in this other way. If he wants you to do a certain thing, he will tell you, not someone else. 
Oh, it's true that after you've done it, some other godly Christian may come to you and say, yes, I see and sense the anointing of God upon what you've done. But God will tell you, not someone else. And Scripture is not deceiving you when it says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He will guide his people by his word and spirit. Now, I must come quickly to the third thing that John is emphasizing here. You see, this other thing is wrong. No one must be allowed to assume that role that I have described to you. Why? Because it is the Holy Spirit's role, uniquely and alone. He speaks. He guides. He gives direction according to the word of God to his people. And this is the believer's reassurance in verses 28 to 29. And with this, I'm going to finish. Now look at those verses. And now, dear children, continue in him that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed. What beautiful balance to these stern warnings that John has given. He comes and he says, my beloved ones, my dear children in Christ, And what balance and beauty there is in his words. Now, what is he telling them? He's telling them that God has made a provision for them. Why? Because he sees they're in danger of being unsettled. When you are told, as he has told them, that many antichrists are abroad in the world, what is your reaction if you are a Christian? I am afraid that I may be missing out on their insights and their mystical claims and their special knowledge that they placard across the face of their cult and sect and religion. We are the people. Come over and join us, they say. And my fear in my heart is, am I missing something? Am I being left out? Do I need something more than the word of God and the Christ of God for my Christian faith as well. And John answers, you're not missing a single thing, not anything. Look how he puts it. You may have confidence, he says, and not shrink away when your Lord appears in glory. And that word confidence is the calm confession of Christ, which is uh, so peaceable to the heart but enables us to speak openly without dissembling and without deceit so that when we come and stand in the presence of God, we will not need to be concerned that we have missed out on anything that we haven't got the mysterious insight that they claim. Because, he says, what you already know is enough to give you confidence when he appears. Do you notice that in verses 28 particularly, or verse 28? What you already know is enough to give you that boldness when Jesus shall appear. Now, what a comfort that is 
in the words of J.B. Phillips' translation, and I very seldom quote him, so that if he were suddenly to reveal himself, we should know exactly where we stand and not have to shrink away from his so glorious presence. Do you see, beloved, what John has been saying to you this evening? That Christ is coming. That in that day there are only two alternatives to stand before him with shame and disgrace, or on the other hand, to stand before him with boldness and confidence. And he says to us, you have all that you need in the anointing of the Holy Spirit that leads you into the whole truth of God's word. And you need no more than that safe in Christ, looking to him alone, you enter in to the life that is truly eternal. So, my dear Christian friend, surely you realize as a result of this study this evening that questions concerning truth matter. They really do. And an essential test of your Christian life is the test of truth. So important, John says, that if you don't hold to it, you are with the Antichrist instead of the Christ. And it is, moreover, our Christian responsibility to know that anointing of the Holy Ghost, that abiding in Christ, whatever the deceptive voices of the world around us may say, in whatever direction they may seek to lead us, we are to know the word abides in the Christian and that gives him all that he needs to seek. And it teaches us finally the means by which every Christian achieves victory over error, the Word conjoined with the Spirit. What a blessing, as I said to you last Sunday evening, to be in a Reformed church where we're not led astray by novelty, where we don't believe that everything is new, that is new must automatically be true, but where we come with reverent and obedient hearts to God's Word, to God's Christ, and we know that while deceivers are abroad in the world, the Holy Spirit has equipped us with everything we need to stay in the straight and narrow path of God's own revealed truth. What a blessing that is. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven this evening, we thank you for this message and this portion of Scripture convey its truth to the hearts of every one of us that we may truly abide in God's truth. Amen.